by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the latest episode of Emerging Markets Decoded, the podcast that tackles the latest trends shaping the world of emerging markets. I'm your host for today, Ariane ortiz Bolin from Moody's Global Emerging Markets Team, coming to you from New York. On today's show, we'll focus on China and its plans to reduce carbon dioxide emissions to net zero by 2060. China has higher carbon dioxide emissions relative to GDP than the EU and the US. And while energy demand in those economic blocks will likely decline across all sectors, China's energy demand continues to grow. This underscores the impact China's carbon policies will have at a global level. And as one would expect, there are significant differences in carbon net zero approaches across these three economic blocks. Starting points are quite different, driven by economic structures, level of development, and policy choices. At present, China and the U.S. face greater implementation risk, given their generally less ambitious policies and less pressure from the public and the investment community to accelerate the transition. But nonetheless, China has bold plans to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, and inevitably, key sectors of its economy will be subject to aggressive policy adjustments, which poses challenges to fossil fuel-driven sectors. And what credit risks do these Chinese entities face? How will provinces with quite different capacities achieve carbon transition? We'll explore these questions and more. But first, we're joined by James Leeton from our ESG team, who's the lead architect of Moody's carbon transition assessment of companies in high impact sectors. James can give us some context as to why this risk is particularly important for emerging markets. James. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ariane. Thanks for having me. Now, James, you and others recently published a report that looked into the prevalence of ESG factors among public sector issuers, reviewing nearly 5,600 credit rating action announcements from last year. Aside from the social risks associated with COVID-19, which understandably drove the increase in ESG citations, what were the main conclusions in terms of environmental considerations for emerging markets? So we found that 85% of rating actions for emerging market sovereigns mentioned environmental issues, underlining their relatively high exposure and limited capacity to mitigate these risks. In particular, physical climate risk was the most frequently cited environmental consideration for public sector issuers in 2020. This was a notable difference from our private sector rating actions which cited carbon transition risk the most often. This is why we prioritise our efforts on different types of climate risk depending on the issuer. Governance is always a strong issue for public sector issuers, and there is an overlap with physical climate risk in terms of the ability of a country to improve resilience and respond to events. As a result, emerging market sovereigns are currently more exposed. Now, James, what can you share with us related to carbon transition risks in emerging markets? One may think that because advanced economies are the ones implementing aggressive policy adjustments, emerging markets have more time 
that is to adapt and to implement policies to then achieve carbon neutrality. Is that true? Why or why not? So I think the recent IPCC report has shown that there's limited time for all countries. Regions are also all connected through supply and demand, so there's no hiding from the energy transition. However, it does pose more of a challenge of stranded assets, for example, for advanced economies where there's flat energy demand than it does for emerging markets who still have growing energy demand. In terms of fossil fuels, where there's declining uh, demand for, for those, then this is being accelerated by the ongoing efforts among leading economies to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, which will increase carbon transition risk for all the hydrocarbon exporting sovereigns, several of which are emerging market economies. And the challenge of adjusting to lower demand and lower prices for these hydrocarbons will be particularly high for sovereigns which already have relatively weak fiscal and external positions, which again tend to be emerging markets. And what about other countries that are not fossil fuel exporters? Well, the flip side of this is that fossil fuel importing nations can become more energy independent and less exposed to commodity price risk if they're able to make the transition, which would then be credit positive. We also see that a number of emerging markets have very strong positions in terms of technology development, such as battery manufacturing capacity. So places like China and South Korea are well positioned to maximise those opportunities. The efforts to achieve net zero uh, worldwide will also impact other emerging markets that are not hydrocarbon dependent. Uh, The finance sector is increasingly aligning with net zero targets in the run up to COP26 which we expect to translate into greater demand for clean energy investment opportunities. And finally, we're also seeing ESG issues connect to trade negotiations, which shows the economic value that's at stake here. The carbon is increasingly being accounted for through the value chain and across financial markets, meaning there'll be greater pressure to align environmental standards and demonstrate decarbonisation. So all in all, it's uh, very difficult to separate the futures of different markets on climate. James, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Arya. Now, let's ask two of our Asia experts to share their analysis on China's path to net zero emissions and to tell us how China's five-year plan aligns with the goal of carbon neutrality by 2060. We'll find out which Chinese sectors are more exposed to the policy shift and which are better equipped to adjust. For this, I'm joined by Nishad Mashmudar from our Sovereign and Credit Strategy teams, who's joining us from Singapore, and Jack Yuan from our Sub-Sovereign team, who's joining us from Shanghai. Nishad, Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Arya. Good to be with you, Arya. Now, Nishad, let's start with you and with the broadest conclusions from your recent report. Do China's policies put it on track to meet its net zero carbon emissions target? Sure, Ariane. Well, I would say yes, but uh, with a few caveats. Um, As you mentioned, China's 14th five-year plan gives us an initial blueprint for moving closer to peak carbon dioxide or CO2 emissions by the end of this decade and on the way to reducing to net zero emissions by 2060. Now, many of us have been watching this closely given China's central importance in reducing emissions and tackling climate change. Now, the path that China chooses in reducing emissions over this decade is gonna be crucial. If emissions are to peak only in 2030, the road to net zero by 2060 will require an even more stringent path of emissions cuts beyond this decade in order to align with the Paris Climate Agreement. Though it is possible that improvements in technology over the decade will allow for faster emissions cuts than we expect in our baseline. 
But I, I think it would be useful to put China's policy challenge in a broader context. Uh, first, China is indeed the world's largest current emitter of CO2. And like many of its peers in Asia, it has an outsized reliance on coal-fired power generation. China's, of course, also a manufacturing powerhouse, which includes even high emission industries like steel and cement that are key to China's own growth, investment, and employment objectives. Now, the government's blueprint sets specific targets that will allow for peak emissions by 2030. And these include things like changes in the energy mix or targets for reducing the carbon intensity of GDP growth. Now, in previous five-year plans, the government has been able to achieve these targets or even surpass them. Uh, but we do think that the transition will become increasingly difficult over time, given the structure of China's economy. Hmm. It makes sense. The, the later a country plans emissions to peak, in this case by 2030, the tighter the path then to reduce emissions in the years that will follow, if the country is to meet its carbon neutrality target by 2060. Now, what will the credit impact be for the Chinese issuers? Could you please explain which sectors are more exposed and why? Sure. Well, I, I think like in any country, uh, we naturally have to start with the power sector in China, which generates around half of all CO2 emissions. And so in our view, the, the net zero plan will be credit negative for coal power generation specifically. But we do think that the impact will be gradual. And let me explain. The government, first of all, plans to stop installing new coal power capacity only from 2025. So there's still five years of additional capacity that will be brought on. But we expect investment flows and the growth in new power capacity to be driven by non-fossil fuel sources like solar and nuclear as well. It's also worth noting that China also just launched an emissions trading market for the power sector uh, that over time we think will create market-based incentives for the sector to, to decarbonize. Now, if we turn to other sectors that are heavily dependent on fossil fuels, in China, those sectors are steel, cement, and of course, oil and gas. And for these sectors, we expect a somewhat nuanced credit impact over the next 10 years. Now, issuers in these sectors will indeed face some regulatory tightening and a push to move to greener production technologies. But larger companies in these sectors may actually benefit in the near term from industry consolidation and greater pricing power as a result. Since at least at this stage, there are few economical green technologies and alternatives to steel and cement. And similarly, we expect natural gas to benefit, at least in the medium term, as a so-called transition fuel. And this is because there are ample supplies and gas is relatively less polluting than coal or petroleum-based fuels. Nishani, it's interesting that some oil and gas companies will actually benefit from the transition period, even though they will eventually face the negative credit pressures. But beyond these examples, can you identify which sectors will face the greatest benefits from the policy shift towards greener energy? Sure, Ariane. Well, if we look even to the very near term, uh, the net zero plan will be credit positive for a number of industries that are integral to developing some of these green technologies uh, that, that we've talked about in some of our other research, like electric vehicles, uh, batteries, of course, renewable energy, um, and mining of the metals that go into these new technologies, and to some extent, financial institutions, uh, which are being encouraged by regulatory policy to increase their lending for various green projects and investments. I think it's also worth noting how China's net zero goal aligns with uh, the, the government's broader economic policy strategy, which really is to reduce this emphasis on high carbon primary industries like coal mining or steel and shift toward higher productivity sectors, 
including in services. And I think we see this already illustrated by the fact that some major metropolitan areas like Shanghai, where services activity is more prevalent, um, actually have more ambitious goals for reaching peak emissions even sooner than 2030. Mm. And Nishan, how will convergence of net zero plans outside of China, in the EU, for example, amplify the credit pressures for issuers in China? Well, I, I think this is going to be a very interesting area to watch in terms of trade relations, especially since climate change is, is a global collective action uh, challenge that, that countries need to address uh, in a cooperative sense. I think you know the, the EU has proposed what's called a carbon border adjustment mechanism. And what essentially this does is it would tax any goods entering the EU's customs union that do not embed an equivalent carbon price that's prevalent in, in the euro, uh, in, the, in the European Union. And this is really designed to tackle what's called carbon leakage, which is really European companies moving their production outside the region to avoid these carbon regulations. But this will also be credit negative for companies, including some in China, uh, that are exporting to the EU. Now, I will say the European plan is not likely to be implemented until after a few years, and it may receive some resistance from other quarters like the U.S., and other trading partners, uh, given the, the trade uh, implications of this. But we also expect uh, any new regulatory developments in Europe or the United States to be complemented over time by China itself further developing its internal carbon markets. And I mentioned the emissions trading scheme for the power sector a bit earlier. And this will allow for some convergence towards uh, carbon prices elsewhere in the world. Hmm. Now, let's turn to you, Jack. As we've heard from Nisha, China has committed to reaching peak carbon emissions by 2030 and achieving carbon neutrality by 2060. This will promote an increasing national energy efficiency over the next decade, but the implementation of carbon transition will be uneven across provinces. Are provinces prepared for the transition and what are they doing to meet this commitment? Yeah, uneven is correct, Ariane. Um, as it stands, most provincial governments, they have included uh, reducing carbon emissions in their work plans and in their five-year plans for the period ending 2025. But I think it's fair to say very few have specified you know, any clear targets or detailed carbon transition plans so far. Um, obviously, what the provinces do is very important when it comes to China's carbon transition because it's very much at the provincial level that uh, energy policy gets implemented. Um, currently, the most detailed carbon transition plans, they come from more developed and energy efficient provinces. Uh, so an example of that would be Zhejiang, uh, which is an export-oriented province on the East Coast. Its government has said that it plans to increase non-fossil fuels contribution to primary energy consumption uh, from 20% in 2019 to 24% by 2025. And it plans to do so by uh, boosting primarily uh, installed capacity of solar and wind energy. Most provinces are far less prepared for carbon transition than Zhejiang. Only a small number have actually specified a date for reaching peak carbon emissions, let alone policies to achieve that milestone. Carbon transition at the regional level um, is also complicated by the fact that a number of RLGs are still in the process of adding coal energy capacity. Uh, ultimately, each province's policy response uh, is likely to be tailored to local conditions. So based on recent guidance from the Politburo, uh, we think that the focus in the near to medium term 
will be on curbing new investment in high energy consuming and high emission industries rather than you know, the, the wholesale tearing down of those dirty sectors. And Jack, now you've already touched briefly on this, but could you tell us which provinces specifically will have the most difficulty bearing the cost of the carbon transition? What characteristics do they share? And of course, can you give us some examples? Sure. Um, it's really the provinces with either large legacy carbon emitting industries or exposure to coal mining, uh, which will have the most difficulty um, you know, bearing the costs of the carbon transition. So in the first group, you have the large industrial provinces, particularly in the north, uh, provinces like Hebei and Liaoning that have heavily industrialized and energy intensive economies. Uh, these provinces uh, will be compelled to import more renewable energy from other regions. But the problem is that their weaker fiscal profiles mean that they're actually less well positioned to do so um, than you know, wealthier provincial peers. And then in the second group, you have the largest coal producing provinces like uh, Inner Mongolia, like Shanxi and Shanxi which currently export most of the coal they produce to other regions in China and that also have uh, weaker fiscal profiles. So local state-owned enterprises and local government financing vehicles that you know, do not transition away from that fossil fuel supply chain uh, will become more reliant on ROG support. And you know, it's very likely that their funding profiles may come under more pressure over time. Uh, provinces in you know the both those those groups that I outlined, um, they're likely to see their long-term debt and their contingent liabilities burdens rise as investments in non-renewable energy become stranded assets, and that we believe will become an increasingly important driver of credit differentiation between different regions uh, in China uh, going forward. Oh, we we covered a lot of ground. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Nisha and Jack. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure, Ariane. Thank you. Now, for those interested in keeping up to speed with our latest views across all emerging markets, you can visit our dedicated Emerging Markets website for the latest research, podcasts, and interactive webinars at em.moody's.io. And you can now also subscribe to Moody's Talks Emerging Markets Decoded on your favorite podcast channels, including Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. Please do share with us your thoughts and comments for future episodes. But until next time, stay safe and thanks for joining us.